0: amen well let's uh i'm gonna have you turn to a couple places as we get into the word of god we're gonna be in galatians chapter three galatians chapter three and also want you to um i just got a text so hold on just a second (laughs) was a visitor. They're over at Nove Kodesh right now. So uh, that's our Sunday morning meeting place. So we'll see if they make their way here tonight or not, but uh, a little bit of confusion there. Anyway, sorry about that. So Galatians chapter three, and then also Genesis chapter um, number 17. So we'll be in a couple places here just to try to enhance it. We'll start our reading in Genesis chapter 17, and then we will get to um, Galatians chapter three in just a moment. Once we've read in Genesis 17, you can lose your place. We'll just make some reference there. So Galatians chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 17. So we'll begin reading in Genesis chapter 17, and we'll read the first eight verses here to springboard us. I'll ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of God's word together. and we'll read Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me, be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called, uh, shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations, I have made thee and I will make thee exceeding fruitful and will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee. Now pay attention here to verses seven and eight. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 15 is where we'll be. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one into thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, That it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So we read in Genesis chapter 17 the covenant that God made with Abraham, that would be an everlasting covenant. And now we come to Galatians 3 and we see its application in Christ. And so the title of our message tonight is this The True Promise Keeper. And so we'll consider that tonight. May God bless reading his word. You can be seated. On December 3rd, 1990, former CU coach Bill McCartney founded an organization uh, geared toward reaching Christian men and helping them grow to become the men that God wants them to be. And he established this organization called the Promise Keepers. You heard of that? Anybody heard of the Promise Keepers? It's a pretty familiar organization there. Started right here in Boulder. That's where it all began. Well, we wouldn't agree with the organization in every area of doctrine and philosophy and practice, but we can all agree on this, that families, churches, and the United States of America need men who will step up to the plate men who will lead their families, men who will lead their churches, men who will lead this country in the spirit and the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it's key. This organization, it seeks to cultivate within men the humble servant leadership mindset that Jesus Christ called each and every one of us to. It calls for men to love their wives as Christ Love the church, to be active Christians in the church, to be active in family decisions and active in raising godly young people for the glory of Christ. It calls men to be true to their word, to keep their promises, to do what they say they're gonna do and to be men of highest integrity. In fact, if you go on their website under their name Promise Keepers, you'll see right underneath that it says Men of Integrity. And so the premise of the name promise keepers there is that men of integrity will be the kind of men who keep their promises, men who are true to their word. I couldn't agree more. The reality is, is I realize I'm preaching to mostly men and my mom and my daughter, uh, mostly men here. The truth of the matter is, is that we have a tendency to struggle keeping our promises, being true to our word. I mean, you think about it, a, a man will make Promises to take his wife out on a date. Promise playtime with their kids. Promise to take the family on a vacation. And then work gets busy and they're invited to things and, and things just start to get a little tight. And then we struggle to even keep those tiny promises throughout each and every week. They might promise that work won't get in the way. Or that this financial decision won't strap the family down. And then it turns around and does. They might follow up an apology with something like this. I promise I'll never make a decision without consulting you again, only to do that again the next week. Or it might be that they following a, 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 they or they might promise this. I'll never talk to you that way again. I promise. Or they might say, I'll never bring up your past again. But the next time an argument comes up, they bring it right up again. And so men just struggle. And the truth is this, not just men, but ladies as well, all of us struggle to be true to our word, to be true promise keepers. But I'm thankful that we serve a God who has a long history, not only of making promises, but of keeping them in every single situation. He's always faithful to his word. He is the one true promise keeper. That's who our God is. Well, when you do keep your promises, you make a promise, whether your kids or your spouse or at work, whatever it might be, when you make a promise to them and you actually keep that promise to them, what does that do? It builds trust, it builds confidence where they know they can depend on you to be where you say you're gonna be and when you say you're gonna be at work. Your kids can depend on you when you say, Yeah, I'll play with you tonight, we'll throw the baseball in the backyard. Your wife can depend on you when you do take her out on that date, when you do go on those vacations. And so when you fulfill your promises, it builds trust with the people you made those promises to. Well, God, based on his track record in keeping promises, has made himself uh, completely trustworthy to us. He's proven himself time and time again that he always does what he says he will do, even over generations, even over millennia. He says, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And what that ought to do within us is create confidence. It ought to create trust that no matter what's going on in our life, we can trust in him. And yet we are still people who struggle to trust him. We are still people who struggle in areas of faith to put all our dependence on him. Even when it comes to salvation, even when it comes to finding acceptance with God, we have a tendency to say, man, I've got to do better. I've got to work harder. I've got to keep this law. I've got to follow this rule and regulation rather than trusting what God said. And that is this, that Jesus Christ has all the righteousness you'll ever need. But we still struggle with that. Well, Paul is writing to the Galatians because false teachers are leading them away from the promise-keeping God to a group of law-keeping believers. And what Paul does is, uh, what what happened in their church, actually, is that they taught that you need to keep the Old Testament law if you're going to be accepted with God, if you're going to really be righteous before God. If you want to have a more accepted, and that's really the idea, yeah, Jesus made you righteous, but if you want to have a more accepted standing with God, if you want to be more righteous before God, then you need to be circumcised. You need to become a Jew. You need to keep the dietary laws. You need to keep the holy days, and then you'll really be where you need to be with God, and they would give you a nice, fine smile with that. And the Galatians are following it. Well, Paul's refuting that teaching in this letter. Paul taught them that Abraham, one that they would often allude to, that it was his circumcision that made God make the covenant with him and made him righteous before God. He took them back to Genesis chapter 15 and showed them that, no, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't by the law. It was by faith. And then what he does is he taught them how it's impossible to even attain righteousness by the law of God. And here's the reason why, because if you're going to attain righteousness by the law of God, you've got to keep it line for line. There can't be one breaking of the law. That means you can't tell one lie if you're going to try to get righteousness by the law. You can't have one impure thought. You you can't worship one idol. You can't hate one person. And so if you can't live up to that, then attaining righteousness by the law is impossible. And I'm going to tell you tonight, my friends, it is impossible. You can't do it by yourself. And so what Paul taught them, and this is what we looked at last week, is that when you go back to the law and you decide, I'm going to try to get more righteousness with God by the works of the law, then what happens is you actually bring yourself back under the curse of the law. Because then you're saying, okay, I'm going to keep the law. i got to keep all these rules. And now every time you break one of those rules, you bring more sin into your life. And so he shows them that, no, all that keeping the law is going to do is bring you under the curse of the law. So what's the solution here? Well, he taught them that Christ was the solution. That Christ himself became cursed to redeem us from the curse of the law. That Because it says, cursed is everyone who hangeth on a tree. And so as he hung there on the cross, he literally took the curse of sin upon himself. The curse of the law upon himself. We talked about this a little bit. He became clean so we could be clean. He was separated from God so we could be reconciled to God. And he was put to death so that we could have He literally took the curse upon himself in order to free us from the curse. And what Paul was telling them was it's only by faith in the sacrificial death of Christ that you can be made righteous with God. And the righteousness he provided you with is more than sufficient. And so now he's just going to come at it from another angle. So chapter three is angle after angle about how God planned salvation and righteousness to be by faith and not by law. What happens here is Paul is going to appeal to the true promise-keeping God as a reason why they should trust in his promises rather than their own good works. And the truth of the matter is that, that we've got to trust God as well. And the question that we want to talk about tonight is this. Why should you trust God's promises through Christ? Why should you only place your faith in him in order to be righteous before God? I mean, why not try to keep the law? Why not try to work your own way to God? Why should you just trust in Christ? Well, in our text here, Paul explains that God had made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. Why don't you look with me in verse 15? Paul says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men. And so what he's telling us right here up front is, I'm going to give you an illustration from everyday life. I'm speaking after the manner of men. This is how it goes with man. And so he's going to talk about the covenants that man make. And so we look at verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Okay. so he's talking about a covenant between men. He's he's talking about even in the secular world at this point, a covenant between men. Men, Well, what is a covenant? As you study what a covenant was in their day and time, it was a formal arrangement between two parties about the details and processes of a transaction or an arrangement in particular. It was a mutual understanding. It really functioned how we might look at it as a contract. You know, when you go to buy a house, you sign a contract for it. And in that contract, it's got the arrangements and it's got the details. You'll have seller concessions in there that that you can have the appliances you can have the window coverings you can have maybe even a couple pieces of furniture we're going to leave that for you that'll be worked into the contract also worked into the contract are some deadlines that you've got to have the inspection by this date you've got to have the earnest money in by this date we're going to have the closing date right here and that's the day you're going to turn the keys over to the buyer and so that's the idea of a covenant here it's a contract that details all the arrangements and all the order for this agreement between two people. That's would have been their idea of a contract. So he says, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed. Now this word translated confirmed here, it's a word that means to validate. It means to notarize. You ever had to take a document down and get it, get your VIN number notarized so you get your taxes paid and your a registration done. And so that's the idea of this word. It means to confirm publicly. It also is a word that's used as ratify, to ratify. That means to make publicly and officially valid. Okay. So uh, what's this talking about? Well, you know, in the United, United States Constitution, it's kind of functions like a covenant between all the states. This is the law we're going to all agree to. And what happened is in the Constitution, we have the Bill of Rights, and on December 15th, 1791, the Bill of Rights were officially ratified by the states, and so that means they were officially adopted into law. They were confirmed, they were notarized, they were validated. That means that they were now concrete. They were set in stone because they were ratified. Well, that's what the word uh, confirmed means here. And so he says that when when a covenant has been confirmed, when it's been ratified, he says no man disannuleth. What does that mean? It's a word that means to reject, refuse, to nullify, to declare invalid. It means to do away with something laid down, prescribed, prescribed, or ordained. And so you get the idea here. all of these are very formalized and official words. We're talking about contractual agreement. We're talking about a confirmation, ratification process. And we're talking about one that can't be refused once it's put into place. You see, we have a process of amending or changing our Bill of Rights. It required that it goes to the House and the House has to approve it by two thirds majority. And then it goes to the Senate and they have to approve it by two thirds majority as well before it can go to the president be signed into law. It's not like the Bill of Rights is not like any other law. It's not like you can have in our situation right now where the House is equally divided and the vice president is the deciding vote in that system right now. It's not like they just have to have the majority, the 51 percent. No, you've, if you want to change the Bill of Rights, you've got to go across the aisle and you've got to get a whole bunch of people on board with you if you're going to change that. And so what that shows us is that the Bill of Rights, as a ratified contractual uh, covenant, is a little more serious than just regular laws and policies. And yet here in the United States of America, we still have a way to amend and to change those. But that's very unique to America. It's not how it was in the ancient world. Once a covenant was made like this, it was set in stone. It was permanent. It was everlasting. It was more like, as you read in the book of Daniel, you hear about the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. That was the kind of covenant and law that would be put into place. And so in the ancient world, since no such government existed in that, that was their idea of a covenant. It's permanent. That's one of the things that makes the United States of America so unique is that few, if any, governments ever existed like ours did, which is why our founding fathers in the very beginning said, we need God's leadership here. And it's why they opened everything in prayer, because they were going into a whole new different world of government, trying to do what was best for the people, realizing this hasn't been done before. And this is a unique situation. And so we need God's leadership. But for them, back in the first century world, once this covenant or contract had been signed, sealed and ratified, there was no changing it. There was no amending it or adding anything to it. That's why it says there uh, that, that you could not disannul or add thereto. This word add, it means to ordain beside. Again, it's another formal word there, uh, official word. That The idea is that there is something in place set in stone right here. You can't take something new and ordain it next to this. No, this stands by itself. And so this is what he's saying, this is how covenants work here. Once the covenant has been ratified, it cannot be altered, changed, or attitude, added to. Now he's going to take this analogy, this illustration, and he's going to apply it to the covenant God had made with Abraham. Abraham. Look at verse 16. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. Now, this word promise here, It means, it's a a two-part word that means to pronounce upon someone. And so again, this is another formal official word, that you are making a formal pronouncement upon an individual. And so what he's talking about here is God made this promise. He made a formal pronouncement to Abraham. What was this promise made? He said, and he saith not, unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And so what the apostle Paul is talking about here is he's referring to Genesis chapter 17 that we went back and read And verse seven says this, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And so what he's saying is this kind of covenant that I've just laid out before you here in verse 15 that kind that once it's been ratified and confirmed, it cannot be changed. That is exactly the kind of covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis 17 that says it was an everlasting covenant. And it was a covenant that to his seed, not to many seeds, but to one. And he labels who that seed is right here. And that is Jesus Christ. So that was the covenant God had made with Abraham. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to continue this covenant analogy with the Abrahamic covenant here in verse 17. Here's what he's trying to get to. He says, and this I say, all that is to say this, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ. OK, so he's talking about this covenant with Abraham had been made beforehand of God in Christ. So there's a few things to glean here. Number one, the covenant was not made by Abraham. The covenant was made by God to Abraham. Abraham really had nothing to do with this covenant. This was a promise that God said, I'm going to do apart from your help. Abraham tried to help God out some, but God showed him that's not going to work that way. I can do it on my own and I will do it on my own. And so he makes this, this promise and it's of God. It says it was confirmed before now. This is a word in the Greek that's a, a word. It's uh, make sure I say this right. Prokechuramonin. Big word. Prokechuramonin. Now, what this is, it consists of a couple words. You've got pro there, which pro would be beforehand, in advance. And then the root word kiro, which would be the word ratify. That same word we saw in confirmed before. And so What the Apostle Paul is saying is this covenant, this contractual agreement God had made with Abraham in Christ was already pro-ratified. It's already been confirmed. It's already been taken care of, which according to what he's communicating about the covenant means then that it cannot be changed. Okay, now continue on. He says, in this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after cannot disannul. Now this word disannul is a little bit of a different word than what we saw before in disannulith, which is the word for, um, what did I say that word was for? It was to reject, to refuse. This particular word has everything to do with the word confirmed before it. This is the word akiroi. Akiroi. So you have pro kekiranamen and Pro or acuroi. So you've got these two words. You see the same root there. Okay. The one first pro ratified. This one has the same root. So it has ratify, but it has a before it. Okay. Now, when we think of a theist, that's somebody who believes in God. When we think of an atheist, that's somebody who is without God. They don't believe in God. An atheist. That's the same idea here. What Paul is doing is it's a play on words. He's saying a covenant that God has pro-ratified cannot become a-ratified by the law. He's saying the law can't amend it. The law can't change it. And then he goes on to say that it should make the promise of none effect. This word none effect here, it's a word that they used in the realm of unemployment. It means to render idle to render inactive, to render uh, uh, inoperative. I started back working at Sherwin-Williams in the mornings a couple weeks ago, and they still had all my information in the system from when I worked there a couple of years ago. And so when we went to put in my number into the POS system, it said that I had been deactivated, that I was no longer employed by the company. And so they had to reactivate that for me to become an employee Again, and that's what this word none effect is. It means you can't type in the law and render the promise inactive. You can't render it unemployed. The the law can't, can't perform the job of the promise. The law cannot change the covenant is what he's saying here. And then he goes on to say this in verse number 18. For if the inheritance be of the law. Now, what's the inheritance he's talking about here? Well, obviously the Abrahamic inheritance would be talking about the child God was going to give him. It was also talking about the land that God was going to give him, that he was going to make of him a great nation. And so you've got all those things that would have been part of the inheritance. But in the context of Galatians chapter three, the inheritance that he's talking about is going back to verse number six, where it says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Okay, because the context here in this book is how you become righteous with God. And he's telling them it's not by the works of the law. You don't inherit righteousness by the works of the law. You inherit righteousness by believing in God, by faith. And so he's talking about here in verse number 18, the inheritance of righteousness. He says, if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. You know what he's saying there? He's combating the false teaching that was saying Christ initiates your righteousness and the law finishes it. What he's saying here is they can't work together. You cannot be made righteous by the promise, which is by faith, and by the law. They don't coincide. They don't work together. It's got to be one or it's got to be the other. Okay, well, which is it then? Are you made righteous by the law or are you made righteous by the promise. Well, who can declare that? Only the one who made the covenant in the first place. What does he declare? End of verse 18. But God gave it to Abram by promise. What he's saying here is there's really no argument. There's no argument to be had. There's no debate to be had here. There's no point in your church of going back and forth and saying, is it promise or is it law? Is it promise or is it law? Is it faith or is it works? There's no point in that. There is no argument because this is what God did. He gave it by promise. This word gave, it's actually the word that has as its root, the word translated grace, grace. It's. It means the Unmerited favor. It means something that's freely bestowed. This particular word translated gave here, it's a word that means to, uh, to show someone or show oneself gracious through benevolent gifts. It's actually the same word often translated to forgive or pardon. He says, God gave it freely to Abraham, not by the law, but by promise. It was by faith. Now, what's the point of this here? What's he using this this speech here, this argument, this illustration, whatever you want to call it, analogy? What is he using this to communicate to the Galatians? Well, the Galatians were being persuaded to amend God's covenant promise, to change it, to make it not just by faith. Yes, you need faith, but also to make it by law. And so they're being taught to do this. And what Paul's doing is he's rebutting that teaching with the fact that it wasn't the place of the law. And I'll add this, nor is it the place of a church or of a denomination or of any teacher or preacher. It's not their place. It's not the law's place to change a promise that has been ratified by God himself. It's not the law's place. It went back to Abraham, and God is the one who had given it. God was the one who had done it. And so we cannot add law to something God has ratified by promise. Why? Because God always keeps his promise. And he determined from the beginning that it would be by faith and not by good works. He knew that we couldn't keep the law. He knew Israel couldn't keep the law. That's why he gave all these provisions. When you mess up, offer this sacrifice. When you mess up, go to this city of refuge. When you mess up, do this. When you mess up, do that. It had all those those, uh, stipulations. Why? Because he knew they can't keep the law. But instead of offering up sacrifice year after year after year to atone for the sins of man, he sent Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to die on the cross and shed his blood as the once for all atonement. For all sins of all the past and all sins of the present and all sins of the future— He sent Jesus Christ, and now it is not by the works of the law, but it is by faith is how you are justified before God. And so this is Paul's message to the Galatians, that they needed to trust in Christ alone for righteousness because the law could not nullify what God had ratified. Could not. See, the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham, it continues to be fleshed out through history. And what ends up being revealed to us is this, the seed that was promised through the covenant to Eve, the covenant to the woman was not really Seth. It wasn't really Abel, first of all, and it wasn't really Seth. And the covenant made to Abraham, his seed really wasn't Isaac and it wasn't Jacob. And the seed of David was not really Solomon. No, what, what history reveals to us is that these promised seeds all pointed to a greater seed who Paul tells us right here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed of promise. He's the promised one who, who, in the covenant who would bruise the head of the serpent. He's the promised seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's the promised seed who would establish his throne and rule and reign forever on the throne of David. Jesus is God come in the flesh through the line of Seth and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And he came through that royal seed of David, but he did not set up his throne just yet. He still will one day. No, he came to suffer and to bleed and to die on the cross so that people from every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation might come to him by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection so that they might be justified in the sight of God. As the Apostle Paul said back in verse 8, that the Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the heathen through Christ by faith. And so it preached the gospel unto Abraham and said, "In In thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. See, that perfect seed was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that did not happen by the works of the law, but by the promise of God. By a covenant that was everlasting, by a promise that was not realized by law, but by faith. God confirmed it. He ratified it. He held up his end of the deal, and there's nothing, any law, there's nothing, anything else that you can do that can neither amend nor nullify that promise that God made that righteousness would be by faith in Christ. You know what that means for you tonight? That means that you should trust in Christ for righteousness as well. Why? Because nothing can nullify what God has ratified. Nothing can. See, good works and keeping the law can't nullify the righteousness that God covenanted by faith in Christ. You can't earn your salvation by keeping the law. You can't earn a more righteous standing or a more accepted standing before God by keeping a list of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and haves and haves-nots of Christianity. That's not how you become righteous with God. That you cannot, uh, And it's only by faith. You can't earn it. It's only by faith in the sacrificial death of Christ. But you know what? That's great news. See, we love to be our own saviors, and a lot of people will say, well, but if, if it's just Christ, that's too simple. No, I should have to do something. And the reason why is because we want to save ourselves. That's how we are. But what I tell you and what Paul would tell us is we can't do it ourselves. Why? Because you break one part of the law and you're guilty of the whole law. The curse of the law is back upon you. And so it's not our righteousness. It's not our earning it. But because it's by faith in Christ, the reason that is good news for us is because we fail far more than we care to admit We do. And so if if our righteousness and acceptance with God was dependent upon our good works, we would be in big trouble. We really would be. But because righteousness and acceptance before God is based not on our performance, but on the performance of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, what that means for you is that there is no failure in your life that can nullify the promise of God. That means that even when you mess up, even when you sin, it can't change the fact that if you trusted Christ as your Savior, that God already sees you righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he exchanged your sin, past, present, and future for his righteousness. And now God for all of eternity sees you as righteous before him. And there's nothing you can do to mess that up. That tells you this, my salvation is is eternally secure, never to be lost, never to be lost. That's the promise of God's word. It might be that you feel like this. I I can't, I can't get my mind around the gospel. I mean, how is it that, how does God, who is omniscient, knows everything? He knows my sin. He knows I still fail. He knows I still mess up. How can he possibly see me as righteous through Christ? How does that work? How does his blood atone for my sin? I mean, how, what does that look like in heaven? What, I mean, there are things about the gospel. I'm, I'm a preacher. I study the word of God. And there are things about the gospel. I have no idea how it works. All God does is call us to trust him. We don't have to understand how all that works. All we got to do is take him at his word. Why? Because he's a true promise keeper. He keeps it. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, we don't know how gravity works, right? We can't see in the, in the air here that there's something going on. I can't even explain this to you. I'm not a scientist. Maybe a scientist can, but this, I, there's nothing here. And yet if I jump off this platform, I'm going down. I'm not going up. I have no idea how that works. I just know it's true. That's how the gospel is. God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there may even be some concepts of salvation that we're just like, we can't see. It ascends up into the clouds above us and we can't fully understand it. But God does not demand that you fully understand it. God demands that you know this. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And so I trust that Jesus is that savior. That's all he requires of us. And so what that means is your lack of understanding can't nullify what God's promised to you. Your fears and your doubts can't nullify what God's ratified. See, because there may be times when you doubt your salvation. There may be times you are saved and you still fear death. I mean, death's not an awesome thing to think about, right, <laughs> necessarily. Now, there are some that are just like, Lord, take me on to glory. I'm like, I'm like Lord, I'll be raptured, but don't kill me, please. <laughs> Don't, uh, especially in a tornado, If there's one way I don't want to go. It's in a tornado. I was not made to fly. I was made to be on this earth. And that's the worst way I can think of dying is just being flung across the earth. And so there may be times you, you even fear death, but here's the thing. If you truly trusted Christ as your savior and, and you're doubting whether or not maybe you prayed the right prayer, or prayed it the right way, or you doubt whether or not God could truly save somebody like me with the baggage that I've had in my life, with the mistakes that I've made, I just don't see how God could do that. The truth of the matter is that your doubt and your fears cannot amend or void what God has declared to be true, and that is this, that all who trust in Jesus Christ are forgiven, are redeemed, are reconciled unto God and made righteous before him. So your fears and your doubts, they can't affect the covenant. Neither can your feelings. Because there are times you may not feel saved. There may be times you tripped up in sin. There may be times you drank too many. There may be times you smoke too many. There may be times you said things. There may be times you bowed down to things. There may be times you committed sin. And there are times in your life that, hey, when sin is wreaking havoc on your life, that is going to cause doubt. That's going to make you feel like you're not saved. But it's not to, it's not to create within you this just. Dying doubts. Am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? No, the purpose of that is the conviction of the Holy Ghost that is saying this stop doing that. Stop doing that. Come to me. I died on the cross to set you free from that. And so there are days though that you may not feel saved. There are days you may not feel forgiven or you don't feel righteous. But listen, God's promise of salvation and acceptance with Him is not based on how you feel on a day to day basis. I'm thankful for that. Why? Because our emotions are all over the place. I mean, even preachers. Sunday, everything's great Sunday morning. We had visitors, maybe had somebody walk down the aisle. I mean, it's exciting. And then you can come to church on Sunday night, and it's just you and your family, and you're like, you're down in the pits again and you go home and on Monday you're just praying, you're crying out to God, God, why is it like this? How long is it going to be like this? And, and so there are times where I may feel like I'm a terrible preacher times that I feel like I'm a terrible pastor, a terrible father, a, a, a terrible husband. I mean, there are just days where we can just feel like we are a complete mess in our lives. But what I want to tell you is this, just because I may feel like a terrible preacher doesn't mean I'm any less loved and accepted with God. And just because you may feel like you've messed up too much doesn't mean that God is unwilling to save you. And it doesn't mean that God is unwilling to work in your life. It doesn't mean you're not still declared righteous before him just because you messed up or just because you don't feel that way. I'm thankful that even when I fail as a dad at times, that God offers forgiveness and he doesn't write me off and he doesn't just, uh, just declare me unrighteous and back in my sin again. No, even my feelings are not based, uh, or my salvation is not based upon my feelings. It's based upon his finished work on the cross of Calvary. That's true in your life. The covenant God has made to redeem man by faith in Christ is an everlasting covenant that will stand for all eternity. What that means is this. There's no false teacher. There's no religious system. There's no denomination. There's no culture. And there's no society that can nullify or add to what God has said. What he has said is true. So that means for us, there's no reason to fear death. Why? Because God keeps his word. There's no reason for you to question whether or not the promise is still in effect because the, the promise that God put into an effect will always be in an effect. There's no reason to try to earn your salvation or work your way to a more righteous standing with God. And even when you fail again, even when you fail, you are not less loved. You are not less accepted before God. Why? Because it's not based on you and your failures or your righteousness, it's based on Jesus's success and it's based on his finished work and it's based on his ability to perfectly fulfill the law and go the distance and offer his life as a sacrifice. And if you'll just trust in him, God's promise will be true. But that doesn't mean you can just go live however you want doesn't give you a license to sin because you don't have to keep the law. No, we've talked about this at the end of chapter 2, that if you're living under Christ's authority, and if you're truly a born-again Christian, then Jesus is living in you and he wants to live through you. And the way that he does that is he gives you the Holy Ghost to prick and pry at your heart and tell you that was wrong. That was wrong. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have eaten that. Shouldn't have drank that. Shouldn't have gone there. Shouldn't have been with that person. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So it doesn't mean we can go live however we want. We just don't need the law to guide us because we got the Holy Spirit. The problem is too often we don't yield to the Holy Spirit. We can refuse We can resist, and that ends up grieving and quenching his work in our life. And if you go far enough, he'll let you go. I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation, but he'll let you go and wallow in the mud. (laughs) He will. Listen, what this means is, like Abraham, you need to trust in the truth. That through Christ, God can do with you what you can't do by yourself. And that is make you righteous before him in heaven, and right here on this earth right now. Because that promise is not based on you, but on who Jesus is. It means you can rest totally secure in the salvation and the righteousness you have received by faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing, no law, no teacher, no fear, no doubt, no feeling, no failure. Nothing can nullify what God has ratified. If you've never trusted Christ alone for salvation, forgiveness, and everlasting life, you can make that decision tonight. You may have spent your life trying to earn your salvation, but any attempt to earn salvation will just prove to be futile. Why? Because you can't be perfect. God ratified that it would be by faith and not by law. And he promises to you today that if you will come to him by faith in Christ, you will leave this place forgiven, accepted, and justified before God. And believer, there's nothing you can do, nothing you can fear, doubt, or feel that can change who you are in Jesus Christ. So rather than fretting, rather than trying to earn greater acceptance with God by following a list of rules and regulations or, by, or acceptance with God by the sweat of your brow, just understand this, that in Christ, you have all the righteousness, all the acceptance, and all the salvation you'll ever need with God. And so the challenge tonight is the same as it was from Paul to the Galatians, and that's this, trust in Him. Whether for salvation or for righteousness today, He's sufficient. If you'll trust Lord, we come to you.